This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at present films and films from days gone by that may or may not otherwise be connected. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name's Karsten Knox. I'm also a film writer, and I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And you've got a podcast, too. That's true, yeah. There's a podcast there that you can check out as well if you'd like. And today we're going to look at the career of one of our favorite actors who sadly passed away earlier this year, Albert Finney, plus a few other notable uh, folks who uh, have gone to the great beyond in the first months of 2019. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast. A Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. So, Stephen, so good to be here with you again to talk about film. And, uh, you know, I think we're in this age now, 2019, where the sort of the icons of the boomer actors, writers, directors are passing away with startling uh, frequency. Uh, and, you know, I think every week, every couple of weeks, we could sit down and talk about who we've lost in the intervening time. Uh, but when Albert Finney died in, in early February, uh, I really had took pause. Uh, here was a, here was an actor who I always sort of thought as being the cream of the British thespians, you know, he didn't, he wasn't like a huge star in my lifetime. I know he had his, his big splash when he first showed up in his twenties in the 1960s. But, uh, I always, every time he showed up in a film, I was like, Oh, it's sort of a mark of quality because he didn't work that much, but he chose his projects wisely for the most part. For the most part, and yes. uh, and I always, you know, and then I think emotionally I was connected to him from one of my favorite films, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about today, which is Miller's Crossing, the Coen Brothers uh, gangster picture from 1990. Uh, but you know, he would p- appear here and there on different things. He was in, of course, the Bourne movies. He was in, I think, the second and third one, and uh, you know, kind of like there was Brian Cox, who was the one. Back Bad guy and Albert Finney is kind of a slightly older, slightly more intense Brian Cox. You know, <laughs> and those two guys are easy to mix up. <laughs> it's true, you know, in terms of like uh, very sort of jowly, uh, intense British thespians. Uh, so at any rate, uh, going back to watch Albert Finney's body of work here. Of course, we didn't get to all of them. He has he has a lot of great films. Oh yeah, but but the ones that we chose to watch, many of which I hadn't seen before, was a really eye opening experience. What a fascinating group of films, and what interesting work this guy chose to do with his time. 
Yeah, he he was definitely a powerhouse of cinema. Both, uh, you know, certainly in England, he, his he was a revelation arriving on the scene, but uh, but also in, in North America. And uh, I think by the time that we sort of noticed him in films, he was you know settled into character roles pretty much. He wasn't so much a leading man. He did have some leading parts in some very interesting films later in his career. But you know, like I think of being aware of him when he played Daddy Warbucks in the musical Annie, which is probably the least typical role of his entire career. Uh, And uh, I highly recommend it. We didn't watch it for this podcast, but I have seen it a couple of times over the years. And uh, yeah, Albert Finney in a bald wig, tap dancing, uh, you know, singing the sun. Well, I don't know that he sings the sun will come out tomorrow, but, but he's certainly prominently featured throughout the film. And it was one of the most, I mean, even then people were remarking on what an oddball bit of casting it was like, he's like, don't you want someone who can actually sing and dance? (laughs) But you know, he, he's game. He does it. I I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why John Huston picked him and you know, but, but maybe it's a good thing he did because then of course they worked together on a film we'll talk about later under the volcano, right? which is uh, an amazing film for everybody concerned. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe he just decided he wanted to be in a musical. Who knows? Yeah, and he he, he chose different stuff every time out. It just I, mm. I feel like he had a restless, creative spirit. And, uh, you know, I think he, he won a, a bunch of awards for playing Winston Churchill in The Gathering Storm, this HBO miniseries opposite Vanessa Redgrave. I actually did, I haven't seen that, but I hear he's terrific in that. Yeah, and I don't um, think there's a lot of prosthetics involved. Well, no, exactly. Yeah, like by that Gary point, Oldman performance. Yeah, at that point, he was closer to the bright age. Uh, and he earned those jowls. Indeed, yes. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's like all over his career, he the, there are examples of this award worthy work. And uh, but he was he was remarkably uh, handsome and leading man type when he first arrived on the scene back in 1960. Uh, watch, I watch, we watch Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, directed by Carl Rise, uh, who and and this is one of those those very much of the era social realist uh, comedy dramas, uh, mostly drama, uh, but a really incredible film. I was so taken by it. Um, it's set in Nottingham where F- Finney plays Arthur, a machinist, making bicycle parts in a factory in Nottingham. And uh, he's he's kind of one of those sort of angry young men. He's very judgmental of the community in which he lives. He wants, you know, he doesn't want what they want. All he wants is sensation. He can drink anyone under the table. And he's having an affair with a married woman named Brenda, played by Rachel Roberts. And she's the wife of a colleague of his at the factory. Then he meets Doreen, played by Shirley Ann Field, an attractive young woman who takes an interest in him, but she's also very cool and sort of, you know, keeps him at arm's length, which, of course, keeps him interested. Of course. Um, you know, and it is, there's there's a lot of humor here, but there's a lot of darkness. Uh, there's not like any of the characters, these young characters have a lot of hope for the future. Um, but you really start getting the impression that Arthur and his his all his anger and his frustration really is kind of a front. Like he's kidding himself if he thinks he's any different than anybody else. And I think that's what the the film is showing is that he actually doesn't distinguish himself as particularly different than anybody else. Uh, but the film must have seemed very progressive at the time with the storyline around women's infidelity and sex and abortion, which of course was illegal at the time in the UK. And Finney is just a, he's so charismatic. Uh, he just really carries the film. Um, what did you think of it? That that that's such an exciting period in film because 
at the same time, it was kind of like paralleling the French New Wave that was happening across the channel. And in England, we were getting the, the, the so-called angry young man movement. And uh, I, I think this is definitely one of the best films to come out of that. Um, uh, you know, at the same time that this was being made, Tony Richardson was making Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner with Tom Courtney and both of those men that Finney would go on to work with uh, in down the road. Um, and, uh, you know, this is based on, a, I guess, a novel by Alan Silito, who just really understood that kind of uh, oeuvre, that, that, that world. Uh, and then, of course, uh, <laughs> Finney would go on to not parody, but kind of reflect on that movement a few years later in Charlie Bubbles, which we'll talk about when he plays a writer who comes from a working class background. Right. So, so, you know, he makes this more kind of almost surreal film reflecting back on this whole period. Um, but he, uh, he really reveled in it. Um, his dad was, uh, his dad had a, uh, a bookmaking shop uh, not making books, but actually like a, you know, placing bets, um, uh, which actually shows up. They actually film in his dad's gambling joint in Charlie Bubbles. So, you know, it's funny how this autobiographical stuff kind of folds back in on itself in his career. Um, so he, you know, he really came from that background and, uh, you know, more so than say like, look back in anger had Richard Burton, who was, you know, by the time he made that, he'd already been in like Hollywood films and was a very, you know, very esteemed actor of stage. And, uh, you know, whereas Albert Finney just seemed to come right out of the factory. <laughs> almost, it almost seemed that way, even though he'd done stage and, and TV prior to, prior to that starring role. Um, and loneliness of the long distance runner stars Courtney and Courtney's a very, uh, precise and, and, uh, specific kind of actor. He's not kind of a wild force that Finney is in this film. Uh, it's interesting that before this, his only real other major screen credit is The Entertainer, where he plays the son of Laurence Olivier's character, who's uh, Archie Rice, the uh, the vaudevillian uh, entertainer whose family wants to move to Canada and get out of England, which is going through a bit of a post, you know, going through that post-war slump, as it were. And uh, and that's that's kind of the passing of the torch to see the scenes that they have together in that film. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting way for him to start his career kind of getting the nod from Olivier, who, who gives one of his best performances in that film as well. I highly recommend seeking out The Entertainer. But, uh, but yeah, he, he's, he's this unbridled force of, of pent-up anger and frustration of this young generation that, you know, they didn't fight in the war. You know, the, the, their parents all fought in the war, so they've got all these stories of the Blitz and, you know, taking on the Jerrys and all that. And, 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 you know, this young generation feels like they have nothing to show for it. And, it's, you know, everything changed with, like, the whole swinging London thing a few years later. But this this period between, you know, the end of the 50s and the arrival of the Beatles uh, is is a really potent stew for drama. And uh, and this is this is definitely one of my favorites of that bunch. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I haven't seen enough of them, really, to have, like, an overview yet. But what I have seen, I, I love the location work. I love the sense that they were shooting in these places, on these streets where people were living. And, uh, and that sense of realism, the unvarnished drama of it all, and having characters speak like, you know, that working from these working class neighborhoods, from these industrial towns, uh, the, the, the accent, if you're not used to it, is a little intense. It takes a while to sort of tune your ear. But boy, it's uh, the, the dialogue, all the, the performances are all A+. Plus. And uh, yeah, so I, I uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning, was uh, was kind of a revelation for me, and I I also I gotta say a nod to Shirley Ann Field, who I mentioned. Um, 
I recognized her from the off, even though I hadn't seen her early work. And it's because 30 years later, she was in a, in a film which I is tops my list of movies I wish were on DVD, and that is Hear My Song, which I think I've mentioned on this podcast oh, that's before. A, yeah, that's a lovely song. A movie, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's really it's really great. But I, I again, it's hard to find because it's it hasn't been released. I suspect, as with so many films with uh, um, you know a lot of music in them, it's probably tied up on on you know rights issues and that kind of thing. I try to remember who played the tenor in that. This, uh, oh, Ned Beatty. It was Ned Beatty. Okay. Yeah, it was Ned Beatty. Anyway, yeah. So uh, so anyway, um, all of which to say, Saturday night and Sunday mornings worth seeking out. We you also introduced to me Stephen Tom Jones from 1963, directed by Tony Richardson, yes. <laughs> and this is a four time Oscar winning winner, including best picture, best director, best original screenplay, and best score. Uh, Finney was nominated for best actor. He did not win, but uh, it's one of those pictures that really nails that feeling of oh yeah of course this must have been hugely influential the sort of British period romp which everyone from the Pythons to Rowan Atkinson to Benny Hill ran with in the years following but to me looking back at it it seems really dated (laughs) oh yes Um, it is yeah it's not it's it's not so fondly remembered as among Oscar it's one of those films that come up when they when people discuss like dopey Oscar best picture wins yeah often Tom Jones gets lumped in with that, but it's still a highly entertaining movie. Uh, but it's you know aspects of it have not aged well for sure. But you know that that may go back to the sort of the body nature of the source material as well. But it is very much a film of its time. Yeah, yeah, and I guess the newly permissive '60s meant the film could be full of innuendo and sexually aggressive women, and I guess that probably helped with the box office, which was pretty big, I gather. But oh, it, huge hit, it, yeah. you know. But a, but a, not. A, it's sort of amazing to think that a, a sort of campy, ridiculous comedy would have earned all that sort of, uh, that awards attention at the time. Uh, the, the story basically Finney plays Tom, a child born out of wedlock in the 1700s, raised by a wealthy squire. As a young man, he's irresistible to women. Everyone talks about how handsome he is. Um, <laughs> and he, but he's genuinely in love with Sophie, played by Susanna York. Uh, but because of his station, he can't marry her. So he sets out to find his fortune, but man, all he manages to find is bad luck and jealous husbands. And the plot sort of strings together his adventures, which is mostly comedy vignettes and episodic sequences as he travels to London, continually meeting people who have some connection to his life. Uh, and there are a lot of dogs and horses in the movie and a lot <laughs> of slapstick and farce and even a segment that starts the film like a silent film. So so the, the Richardson was really working with a lot of ideas in terms of how to to goose the material to make it really funny. And a lot of harpsichord. Yes, a lot of (laughs) harpsichord in the score, which apparently was beloved because of, you know, it won won the Oscar. Uh, I, I really appreciated the different camera styles, the editing, and, you know, lots of stuff there aimed to keep us interested in laughing. And I really enjoyed the way that the actors broke the fourth wall and winked at the audience. That happens quite regularly. Uh, it just feels that this kind of humor has been done so much since then yes. that uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just funny to see where it started, I guess. Yeah, I guess, I guess to enjoy Tom Jones, you have to kind of look at where it, you know, when it came from, uh, you know, both, uh, Finney and Richardson did not want to get trapped in the angry young man mode. Um, there was a lot more going on in cinema around the world, and they wanted to be kind of at the forefront of it. So, you know, one was to take the, the historical costume drama and really, you know, goose it up a little. Um, uh, and and you're right, they they and they start in silent movie mode, 
Uh, and then with with the discovery of of infant Tom Jones uh, in the master's uh, chambers, and then uh, you know as as I've learned from elsewhere that they kind of wanted to progress through the different styles of movie making. So it does start out like a silent comedy, then it becomes a bit of a just a period drama. But then all of a sudden there's like a you know there's a deer hunt where they're using helicopter shots and and uh, quick cutting and 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 the film the film style changes a number of times over the course of the film and it's it's something i wasn't aware of the first couple of times i watched it but certainly uh you know when i knew to keep an eye out for it you notice you know how audacious that aspect of it is where they go from the very you know they kind of cover the history of cinema through the course of making this this movie and uh you know it, it's a lot of fun there's some really over the top performances by the supporting cast uh it's definitely in the same kind of vein as the Richard Lester uh comedies you know he would go on to you know Lester was also a vibrant force even though he's American he was making films in England and he, in the 70s he made a uh, a pair of Three Musketeers films, which are very much in this sort of vein. Yeah, I remember those. You know, with some celebrity stunt casting uh, to kind of put them over the top. Um, and of course, in the wake of Tom Jones' success, which it was a huge success and, and made Finney, because I'm sure not a lot of Americans would have seen uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, but they sure saw Tom Jones just uh, just because it was, you know, the reputation of it was that A, it was incredibly funny and B, you know, fairly salacious or as much as you could be at that point. So that was that was a sort of two-pronged assault on uh, the mindset of North American moviegoers. And so then after this, I think Tony Richardson made another film in the same vein called Joseph Andrews. Um, and then, uh, you know, John Huston made, I think, Mary Andrew with John Hurt in the lead uh, a few years after this. And everybody was kind of making these powdered wigs and, uh, you know, and ruffled shirt kind of comedies. Uh, and so the, the, the taste for them went out pretty quick out the door pretty quickly because, you know, none of them are as good as Tom Jones. I mean, John Houston's my favorite director, but even the film that he made isn't as good or as innovative as, uh, Tom Jones. And it took, uh, I guess it would take, uh, Kubrick making Barry Lyndon about a decade later to kind of bring it back around, you know, right. to tone down the comedy, but, you know, make it more, a dark comedy or a satire or what have you with, uh, with Barry Lyndon. Um, you know, cause I'm sure when he was making it, people just thought, what is he nuts? Is he just making his version of Tom? Jones? Like, I'm sure people thought that when he was adapting Barry Lyndon, but of course it's a, it's a brilliant film and, and one that, uh, people seem to appreciate even more now than when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I, I, uh, well, I I don't know if I I would say Barry Lyndon is one of my least favorite Kubricks, but you know I, I know it's one of but it's yeah before. it's one of we've 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 been down that road. <laughs> yes, I, yes. I, I I love the film more and more every time I see it. So uh, maybe I just need to watch it more. Um, but uh, we should talk about Finney working with Stanley Donan, who we also lost in recent weeks, uh, a director of some classic films. Uh, but he he worked with Finney. Um, and Audrey Hepburn in a film called Two for the Road in 1967. Now, interestingly, Finney took a year off to sail around the world before making this film. Just having achieved stardom, he he risked all of that to have a real experience, you know, away from from making films, which I think is a is a credit to his, you know, his cojones. He yeah. he he did things that were very un, unlike the traditional star and wasn't a slave to the sort of fame machine. But uh, Two for the Road is a fascinating film. Uh, it's it's about marriage uh, with Finney and Audrey Hepburn falling together and falling apart, told over a series of summer holidays in rural France, sometimes in the south, sometimes in the north. 
and it's told and cut out of chronological order. Sometimes it's just the two of them, sometimes they're with friends, sometimes they're wealthy, sometimes they're broke, and you jump back and forth um, and you get an overall kind of a cross-section, you know, slice of baloney uh, a section of their, their relationship. And you can get a sense of where they are based mostly on her clothes. She's a real fashion plate in the film. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, an, it's a wonderful and unusual film looking at a relationship. Uh, and he is so unpleasant to her. You wonder why she stays. And so you're not totally surprised at the time when she leaves. Uh, and it's also interesting because Hepburn was so... Uh, connected to leading men who were older than she yes. is. And here is the first time that a young, a leading man is younger than she was. And it, they really work so well together. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I was saying how I wonder if anyone's gone back and re-edited the film into chronological order <laughs> yes. uh, in the time since. But it's just structurally, it's fascinating. And, it's, uh, and, and the performances really hold it together. Yeah, this is a remarkable film. I kind of held off watching this for the longest time because... Uh, you know, I was uh, the fact that it takes place out of. I, I was never a big fan of films that aren't linear, and I've since, you know, I've since certainly come around on that score because there's lots of films that play with uh, storytelling, and the t- you know, Don't Look Now obviously is a key example. Um, and I just like uh, I don't want to watch a film where it's told out of order, and and uh, you know, I, I feel like a heathen for even thinking that because this film is perfectly easy to follow. I always wonder if that did scare people off the notion that it's it's edited in such a unique way where. You know, it actually starts on one of their last trips and then they, you know, as a couple where they're kind of on the edge of breaking up. And then it flips back to when they first met on the ferry to Cal- Calais and and, uh, and then goes back and forth. But it's it's completely easy to follow and, and you can tell, you know, the, the, the performances are so wonderfully moderated. Because just imagine, I mean, it's, what, the editing of it is one thing where, you know, you have to kind of go, okay, she's got long hair and wearing jeans, so it must be their first trip together as opposed to, you know, when she's, you know, got the big sunglasses and the uh-huh. kind of more uh, Jackie O kind of hair, hairdo or whatever. But... Uh, but you know, I imagine like acting because obviously they weren't going to go back to the same look. You know, they were going to like pick a location and then do all the scenes because they go th- over the course of the film they visit the same locations on various trips. So they would have to like film different scenes on different sets at different periods. So uh-huh. presumably the wig department was working overtime as yeah, well. Yeah, continuity. Yeah, and uh, and then and then as the film goes on, it gets it gets even more audacious when you know the you'll see them hitchhiking and then they'll get passed by the car that they're driving later in the film. And of course that's their kind of cut to, to the later period in their, in their marriage. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I loved it. It's, it's, it's a bit dizzying, but it's not hard to follow. And it is, uh, a remarkable achievement for everybody around it. And it is, I mean, Donan, uh, is best known for musicals, of course. Um, and, uh, I think when uh, TCM did their tribute, that's pretty much all they showed. But of course, uh, as a musical, you know, Singing in the Rain, um, It's Always Fair Weather, uh, you know, lots of amazing films that he had a hand in. But, uh, you know, I think he saw the writing on the wall for musicals in the early 60s. And oddly enough, even though there were these mega musicals like Sound of Music, West Side Story, and of course, everyone's favorite, Dr. Doolittle. Um, <laughs> he, he, yeah. He, I think he got a, He decided that he just didn't want to get caught up in that. Those weren't his style of musicals, I guess. So he made things like Charade with Audrey Hepburn and... and um, uh, Cary Grant or Indiscreet with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. And, uh, and you know, he, he was kind of pushing his own limits as a director and trying different types of material. He made a great comedy called Bedazzled with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, which is like this quintessential late 60s irreverent anti-establishment comedy, but it's being directed by this American guy known for musicals. So it's a, it's a really 
odd pairing, but clearly, you know, he liked to challenge, I suppose. And uh, and then, you know, he continued into the 70s with like Saturn 3. Yeah, which, Saturn 3. Which I gather was, um, I think he came in, somebody else quit the project or yeah. was kicked off and he kind of came. I think that's what happened. And it's a really a favor. bizarro 70s sci-fi <laughs> oh, yeah. picture, like Farrah Fawcett and uh, Kirk, Kirk Douglas. Douglas uh, yeah, <laughs> I've got the Blu-ray. As a couple. And I'm just, yeah, it's one I remember seeing as a kid and being fascinated by the tall robot, but I've seen it more recently and it just doesn't quite hold together. And then he, Donan went on to do that Michael Caine midlife crisis comedy, Blame It on Rio, which I'm a little embarrassed to admit I actually own a copy <laughs> of, too. <laughs> well, you know, if it's got Michael Caine in it, it can't be all bad, unless it's Jaws 4. But um, <laughs> He was he did make Jaws 4 around that time. <laughs> yes, that's true. Where he's basically saying yes to anything. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, Two for the Road is, is a wonderful film, and Twilight Time have a beautiful-looking uh, Blu-ray of it, but it's also available on various streaming uh, entities, and, and uh, you know, it's... I mean, the stars are so charming, even when they're kind of being sour to each other. And, and you know, and it, it, it kind of, even even though you know that things are on the rocks when, when Audrey Hepburn has has a bit of a fling with a complete French douchebag, uh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It really is. <laughs> like, I don't know how, how else to put it. I was just so, you know, I'm so disappointed in her with going off this <laughs> jerkwad. But yeah, anyway. but, but, you know, Finney is a, is a pretty big jerk, too, in, in many places in this story. And, and oh, yeah, I, equally, equally, and, for and, sure. And I think that, uh, that what makes it so winning, though, is, is it doesn't really matter the chronology. You're so enjoying spending time with the two of them that uh, even when you can't, you're not sure where which trip this is you're still just enjoying hanging out late in the 60s uh albert finney decided he it seems like he always liked to challenge himself he didn't like to play the same role twice and uh unless it was in the born series where it must have been a nice paycheck when he's a recurring character there but um he decided to uh, team up with a fellow uh, mancunian uh, artist that is a writer um Sheila Delaney, uh, who was known for, uh, she wrote the play A Taste of Honey, which later became a successful film, part of that whole kitchen sink, Angry Young Person uh, series with um, Rita Tushingham in a great role. Um, so she was very famous uh, for, for that play and subsequent work that she did in film. So they seemed like a natural pair. They weren't actually like longtime friends. Like they actually didn't know each other when they were growing up in Manchester, but they came from basically the same sort of neighborhoods. And uh, so they collaborated uh, with uh, Delaney writing and uh, Finney directing himself in a film called Charlie Bubbles. Um, it's a film about a um, dissolute writer who's living in London, and he's uh, you know he's the toast of the town. His uh, his books have been turned into movies, uh, and uh, he's just not happy. He does you know he's had success, he's had fame, he's escaped Manchester, um, you know the, the bleak industrial city to the north, and he's living the high life in London. Uh, and he's, you know, dining at the best clubs and drinking the best booze, and, and yet somehow it doesn't uh, doesn't seem to uh, to fulfill him any. And uh, and so he's playing a character, obviously kind of based on those writers like John Osborne and Alan Silito, and those writers who kind of crafted the whole angry young person <laughs> movement and and uh, kitchen sink drama and all that, uh, and the, the the sudden success that greeted them that kind of separates them from their past. And kind of uh, isolates them to a certain degree, and and Finney is, is is really wonderful here. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to note that uh, he uh, teams up with uh, Stephen Frears behind the camera as kind of his not assistant director, but he he gets a special kind of assistant 
credit, like in fact that he would be kind of running the show when Finney was in front of the camera, and he was his basically his right hand man. Of course, Frears would go on to become a great director. Um, he directed uh, Finney in Gumshoe, a really fun, fairly lightweight but fairly enjoyable sort of comedy mystery film in the early seventies, and um, and Finney kind of it's his one and done. It's like Charles Lawton in Night of the Hunter. He directs his one film and. That was it, you know. Um, from all reports, he didn't really enjoy the process all that much, you know, which is why it's good he had Frears on hand, I guess. Um, and uh, that he just wanted to get back to acting after this experience, but he at least wanted to say that he tried it, I guess, and, and yeah. especially on something so personal. Yeah, and it is a really strange but wonderful film. I was so glad to watch it. Uh, we meet him and and his his character. He's a you know he's he's Charlie Bubbles and he's he's a star and he he's driving his deluxe Rolls Royce, meeting accountants for lunch. And he, he comes across his buddy Smokey Pickles, played by Colin Blakely, and they have basically a food fight in the in this ritzy restaurant and. London. Then Charlie heads back to his house where he has all the modern conveniences, including having every room covered with CCTV and sound. So there's this great sequence where he watches his maid and butler move through the house. And then his secretary appears and it's a first feature role for Liza with a Z, Minnelli. Uh, and it's just strange to see her in a kind in this kind of a movie. She's all of maybe 21. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a film about class criticism you know you just get the sense of this guy who um in some way as i guess it it uh, it reminded me of the jack nicholson bob rafelson picture uh five easy pieces yeah a guy yeah, who is like flavor who's very kind of unhappy in his life and his privilege and he goes back he traces his steps back to his life previously in manchester and um you know i really enjoyed that the cinematography by peter sushitsky is amazing just these these sort of 60s um mid-century modern decked out spaces that they spend time with and then the incredible sort of wastelands of of Manchester being torn down um and uh and then eventually he uh, he he connects with his son who he doesn't he's very distant from and they go to to Old Trafford to see a uh, football a soccer match and uh, and and with his ex-wife played by Billy Whitelaw who is uh, another legendary actor in British uh movies and theater and uh, she won a BAFTA for her supporting role here the the only thing about Charlie Bubbles that bothered me was the ending, which I could not <laughs> reconcile. And I won't say what happens for anyone who's interested in, in you know, uh, watching it. But uh, it's not – it just doesn't quite work in a way that just was like, what What were they thinking? Anyway, I don't know how you felt about it, Stephen, but I, I was a little disappointed. It, well, it's very of its time. Yes, uh, yes. And, uh, you know – I, I guess people were a lot more obsessed with symbolism and, <laughs> and analogies and that sort of thing uh, at the time, and uh, ambivalence was all the rage. And yeah. and also, I think Finney was really taken with a lot of the films, the French New Wave, like Breathless and 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 uh, 400 Blows and so on. I think he wanted to do something in that vein, and I think that's probably why they came up with uh, with a fairly ambiguous kind of finale for it um, that that just comes out of nowhere and doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but. In the scheme of this guy who, and again, I don't want to say too much about it, but in the scheme of this guy who feels so isolated from his new world in, in London and his old home in Manchester, um, it sort of works that he, he just, you know, he's kind of ascended to his own kind of world of his own, I suppose. Um, and whether, <laughs> nice what, choice of words there, Well, Stephen. yeah, and whether whether or not he, uh, you know, continues writing or just kind of goes off. And maybe that's, you know, inspired by his own desire to be apart from everything and sail around the world. You know, I have a feeling that maybe that's 
a kind of a, a nod to that, right. where he just wanted to be away from agents and film sets and and managers and rep- and journalists because yeah. journalists get a get a fair licking in this film as well. It's true, but it, it certainly uh, actually the Time Out film guide uh, reviewer called it a possible cop out because <laughs> by well, that point he's 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 yeah. coming back and it's it's very clear that he, he whatever his responsibilities as a parent he's not fulfilled them to his son um but uh yeah you you mentioned that uh that those fans of of the band the kinks would yes. might might know how this all wraps up a little bit if if you know a song of theirs that references charlie bubbles well the yeah the, it's on preservation act one uh which is not anybody's favorite kinks album but it does have one of my favorite songs by the band sweet lady genevieve on it, but but Ray Davies writes uh, he writes this kind of ode to the early '60s, and you know it's called "Where Are They All Now? Where Are They Gone?" And uh, he sings, you know, "Where are all the angry young men now?" And he, ref- he definitely he directly references Charlie Bubbles and his character in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, and then lists off, you know, all Richardson and Osborne and Silito, all the the people who kind of created this this movement, and they all get mentioned in the song, and and uh, it's. Uh, it's a it's a lovely song. I never yeah, and that's how I knew like that's how I first heard of Charlie Bubbles. I didn't know it was a film. I just I thought maybe it was a vaudevillian character or something like that. And for years I wondered who that song was about. And then finally when I found out there was this film that that Finney made and actually directed and acted in, and then I was like, oh okay, now it all makes sense. Um, you know, because I was listening to this in the days before IMDb, of course. Um, and uh, and also I, I, it's also worth while we're on the topic of music. Um, of course, uh, Manchester and Salford, the neighborhood that uh, Finney grew up in, was also, of course, home to the Smiths. And there's a Smith song called Sheila Take a Bow, uh, which must be a, an ode to Sheila Delaney because uh, this is a particular favorite film of Morrissey's who tried to get Albert Finney onto the cover of a Smiths record while the band was going because uh, he always had Terrence Stamp and Rita Tushingham and a lot of stars that he was enamored of. He tried to get them on his album cover, on the Smiths uh, album and single covers and Finney said no every time. I don't think, he, I think maybe at some point he got them for like a best of or something like that. And he finally agreed. But, uh, you know, while the band was... Uh, in existence, it didn't happen. Yeah. Maybe Finney knew that Morrissey is kind of a prat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he probably got that sense. Um, so, of course, Finney went on to great work, uh, you know, but working when he wanted to. He took much of the 70s away from film, but he did make The Murder on the Orient Express, which we've spoken about in previous podcasts, the 1974 version. We talked about it when we were discussing the Kenneth Branagh recent uh, revival of that uh, story. Um, but in the early 80s, Finney came back to film in a big way doing The Dresser, which was uh, an Oscar-nominated role with him and Tom Courtney. Um, And he made a bunch of sort of low-budget, sort of medium-budget American thrillers, one of which I watched, which was Wolfen from 1981, (laughs) where he acts alongside Gregory Hines in a very early role and Diane Venora uh, and Tom Noonan. And it's and it's ostensible horror picture about wolf creatures killing people around New York, and they ha- inhabit the ruins of old New York being torn down, and they prey on on any New York denizens out at night. Um, it's one of those movies that has terrific locations showing both the modern side of the city and its decaying edges. So I, I mean, the overall theme here is about gentrification and about about um, you know the fact that uh, people are being sh- forced out of their homes and and uh, and don't have a place in modern society. Um, as a horror movie, I didn't find it particularly successful. There's this whole thermovision thing, which is a bit overused, and it just made me think how Predator did the same thing 
much better. Um, but I did enjoy the procedural aspects of the picture and how Finney's sort of donut-eating, tracksuit-wearing detective starts to piece together the mystery of what's going on. Um, it also has some questionable plot issues around the co-opting of Native American culture as part of this mystery that doesn't really wash anymore and starring a, a young James Edward James Olmos playing a Native American character. Uh, you know, there are things about the film, I think, that work. That doesn't particularly work. No. But, uh, yeah, it, again, it's just an example of how Finney was not going to be, you know, boxed in by genre, by, you know, he, he, he just worked in very different kinds of films, and it's always a pleasure to see him. Well, he, I mean, he had this huge success with Murder on the Orient Express. It was, I mean, it was a, an unusual film in that it has this amazing all-star cast. Uh, like, anybody who was anybody was in the film at the time, directed by Sidney Lumet, who would not be your first choice for directing an Agatha Christie, um, you know, locked room mystery, as it were. Um, but the, the film kind of, and now Finney playing, a, you know, a Belgian detective who's, Who's and you know Finney's a, a big kind of burly guy, and here he is playing this character who's you know you think of David Suchet, he's not tall and not burly, <laughs> like that's not the image we have of, of that character. But he he made it his own. He he's great as uh, as um, as Poirot, and uh, and this film is a huge success. It you know it's uh, you know at award time and. Uh, you know, at the box office, uh, returning this kind of old-fashioned mystery to the the big screen, and then he basically takes like the next uh, what seven years off, I think. Like aside from a couple of cameo roles uh, that probably took a day each to film, he, he's pretty much gone until uh, he shows up in uh, in a pretty rote uh, heist movie called Loophole that I watched that I finally watched because I it's just one of those films that I was always aware of, and uh, just so happened the library here in Halifax has the DVD of Loophole. And it is so flat. It is, it's, it's, it's got basically, um, you know, Finney's like a, a, a burglary mastermind who hires or teams up with a, a recently fired architect played by Martin Sheen. You think, oh, Albert Finney, Martin Sheen, this is going to be great. They're, they're great actors. Um, there's a really great supporting cast. Jonathan Price is one of the gang um, who's got, who turns out to be claustrophobic or have a fear of rats or something like that. It, Pops up, of course, at a very inopportune time while they're breaking into a bank, and uh, you know, and um, actually, uh, Charlie Pickles, <laughs> who's I can't remember his name, but the actor who plays Charlie Pickles shows up as one of the oh, Smokey Pickles, yeah, Smokey Pickles. Sorry, uh, oh, Charlie, I got it here somewhere. Col Colin Blakely. Colin Blakely shows yes. up as one of his gang members. So there's this weird overlap of, of careers, I guess. But it's just it's it just feels like it was made as a tax shelter investment or something. Right. There's something about the film that just feels like nobody has their heart in it at all. The story is wrote. The, the dialogue is flat and the direction is lifeless. So anyway, that's all we're going to say about <laughs> Loophole. Like, I was curious about it. I thought, well, here's an Albert Finney film I haven't seen. Must be worth seeing. It's kind of not. <laughs> okay. Um, unless, well, we did unless you just want to be a heist film completist. Because I, sure. I thought, you know, well, you know, Martin Sheen just coming off Apocalypse Now and and so on. And But uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a drag for everyone. Oh, and then Susanna York from Tom Jones uh, plays... Martin Sheen's wife. I don't even think that Albert Finney and her actually meet at any point in the course of the film. So um, it's just kind of an, an odd confluences of, of, of actors, but uh, but overall, completely disappointing. Yeah, and heist movies, I mean, even the worst ones tend to have something in them to enjoy. It's a suspense thriller kind of uh, subgenre. But yeah, the one film we did watch that uh, is certainly for Finney completists and should be seen is Under the Volcano. And this is John Huston's 
film uh, based on the Malcolm Lowry novel about a British consul somewhere in a small community in Mexico just before World War II. So he plays a, Finney plays a character, Gre- Jeffrey Furman, and uh, he's just resigned his post, mostly because it seems he's a desperate alcoholic. He spends his days in a haze of booze. And, uh, you know, he's, he's just kind of on the verge of falling into oblivion when his wife, Yvonne, the terrific and underappreciated Jacqueline Bissett, appears. And she had left him ages ago, but she returns and maybe wants to, you know, rekindle their romance. Uh, and it's about the day they spend together as the two of them and his brother Hugh, played by Anthony Andrews, wander through Day of the Dead celebrations in November of uh, 1938. Um, and Despite the sort of actually lovely setting and beautiful Mexican culture that is sort of evoked in the film, it's a deeply dark film, yes. as as most movies that are honest about alcoholism, I think, do. It's, it, it can be grouped amongst those films, The Lost Weekends and Leaving Las Vegases of the World, um, that that genuinely get to the core of what alcoholism is, is about. And uh, Finney gives a remarkable sort of like ego-free performance. There's a scene where he's being helped into a shower that is just like man he does he he looks rough at yes. this point and uh and he really is there's i mean if 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 you if you like your films with a sense of hope or redemption then you might want to steer clear of under the volcano but but it has uh but it has i think you're seeing an honesty and a truth here that you don't see in a lot of other films yeah well it's directed by john houston who uh was never afraid to shy away from that sort of thing and he kind of understood that lifestyle as well as anybody um you know you look at fat city the 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 film about a failed boxer played by stacy keach which i heartily recommend it's a brilliant film uh this is kind of in that vein you know, about a decade later. Uh, uh, Malcolm Lowry, of course, was a writer who uh, spent a lot of his time in Canada. He was, uh, he spent much of the time when he was writing, living uh, at some point in a beach shack on Vancouver Island, I think, or something like that. Um, And there's a great documentary about him made by the National Film Board. I think Donald Britton was the director, the great Canadian documentarian, uh, which I think also incorporates the volcano under the title. I can't remember the exact name, but you can watch that for free on the National Film Board website um, amongst other places and it's it's really worth seeing it's also included as a bonus feature in the criterion uh, DVD uh, I don't think there's a blu-ray um, but uh, anyway the criterion edition of uh, under the volcano includes the NFB documentary as an extra which gives you some insight into the writer who basically was putting his own you know or much of his own life into that book um, and uh, you know lived a very similar kind of life kind of chaotic and at one point in the film, uh, Finney's character talks about moving to Maine or maybe further into Canada, which makes me wonder, oh, I should have moved to Nova Scotia. But um, <laughs> I, I almost waited for him to say it, but he doesn't quite say it. It's, it's, there's like this... Uh, living this, in a fishing shack by a cove. and like, oh, Peggy's Cove. Yeah, right. yeah. And then this kind of like wintry <laughs> kind of idealism of like having, being away from everyone and just having living together, which he immediately spoils with where he says some awful thing about his wife. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he ruins everything. He, at one point, I think he talks about living in an igloo and eating whale blubber, which means that this is like, this is just a pipe dream at best. Uh, and, uh, and it just, yeah, he just tears everything apart and, you know, basically explains how he's at the point where he cannot function without alcohol. And, uh, apparently from the sounds of it in the film, he's attempted on a more than one occasion. Um, she just wants to get him to a farmhouse somewhere away, away from 
his enablers away from his demons, away from the bottle, and it's just not going to happen. Yeah, and it's, I think what makes it so sad as well is that she clearly loves him, and so does her, his brother. They're yeah. both there trying to help him, and in the moments where the wife, uh, where where if. Yvonne and Hugh are together away from him. They have an affection for each other too. And it's sort of like they've they've both been through a lot with this man, and <laughs> yes. yet they're still there trying to help him. And and you know, but he won't be helped. And I think that's what's so hard to watch in this film. Yeah, especially because there are those moments where he's, you know, he is shown to be a man of conviction, certainly a man of great talent when he wants to. Uh, you know, he 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 wants to stick up for the little guy and you know he's got he's got a personal credo he's like you know he he sees himself as an honorable man he just has this demon of alcohol on his back and and uh keeping him away from perhaps his any kind of potential at all and uh you know that's that's really the heartbreaking thing of this story and it's yeah it is it is pretty dark but uh, the performances uh and 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 you know Houston's use of, of place. Uh, you know, apparently Houston loved shooting in Mexico. Of course he did it in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, my favorite film of all time and, uh, Night of the Iguana. And, uh, in fact, uh, some cast members from Night of the Iguana turn up, um, in this film. So, uh, it's, it's interesting to see some familiar faces, but, but, uh, yeah, it's, I think they only worked together those two times, uh, Houston and Finney. And the other time was of course, Annie, uh, which was, Let's just call it an interesting experiment. That's that's a lot of fun if you're in the mood for it. But uh, but here they really click uh, as uh, director and actor. Yeah. So I've got to give a nod to Miller's Crossing, which uh, is my favorite Finney role and one of my favorite films, to be honest. Uh, and I'm sure if we ever do it, uh, and we must at some point do a Coen Brothers uh, uh, roundup, we'll we'll talk about this picture. I watched it again, and it was just such a pleasure to see it. Um, what a what a what a great role for him, a supporting role as Leo, the gang boss, who. Who uh, you know is kind of got a soft heart for Verna, uh, and he can't quite live without her. And then Tom Reagan, played by uh, Gabriel Byrne, giving him what I think is pretty good advice. But they they split on a lot of things, yeah. and the whole town goes to goes to hell in a handbasket. It's an amazing gangster pastiche, but it also really works as a character study. And uh, famous for that scene where uh, the the guys with Tommy guns come for Leo, and he he anticipates them, and he. Uh, basically deals with these killers in his own way. Um, yeah, what a great moment there for Finney and for for film make film lovers. <laughs> yeah, definitely one of the best film one of one of the best scenes uh, in the entire Coen Brothers uh, uh, oeuvre, or if you will. And, and I think I've used that word twice on this podcast, so slap myself on the wrist <laughs> there. Um, but uh, you know, in in their filmography, uh, and uh, you know, the, just the the use of Danny Boy, the music. Uh, you know the going from being like diegetic music that's playing on the phonograph in the house to just swelling to fill the soundtrack as the action continues outside. Uh, it uh, just a remarkable performance, and 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 Finney just just nails it right to the wall. He's so yeah. good here. Um, you know, and 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 uh, you know he has an affinity for that kind of character even early in his career, like in Two for the Road, where he's kind of doing his. Bogart impression there, and then in Gumshoe in the '70s. So he definitely, uh, it, it seems like he wanted to play this role that he'd always wanted to play, like an Al Capone, you know, type of type of larger than life gangster character. There's seeds of it scattered throughout his early career, and uh, 
and he, he's definitely the kind of the heart and soul of this film in a, in a lot of ways is Leo, the, the, the gangster with the big heart who, uh, you know, who can't say no to, to Vera, I think. Verna, Verna, Verna. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a big part of why, because otherwise this would have been, without him, this film would just be a lot of wisecracks and snappy dialogue and, and you know, amazing cinematography and and so on. Barry Sonnenfeld, I think, uh, was yep. was behind the camera. So, um, you know, Finney's presence is what what elevates it to uh, to classic status in my mind. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, he, I would also direct people to Aaron Brockovich, which he's so good at, good in opposite um, Julia Roberts. Uh, and he just, you know, every time he worked, even in the late in his career, he, he brought something special to it. Uh, the final film that we saw him in was Skyfall, the uh, where he plays the sort of groundskeeper for James Bond's, you know, home. And although I wasn't necessarily a fan of the, how they worked that into the story, into the mythos of James Bond, uh, you know, it was it was still great to see him in that last role opposite Judy Dench. I mean, they have a few moments together there in uh, that northern Scotland cold uh, uh, scenes, and I uh, it was lovely to see them together. So it's been a real joy to go back and uh, revisit the work of Albert Finney as we we say goodbye to him and and certainly we'll miss his presence in film. But uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there have been other people who have passed away in the, the last couple of months that have been, or will be sadly missed. One is the German actor Bruno Ganz, who we've spoken about in other times in this podcast. I think I actually counted three times that we've talked about. Once when we discussed The American Friend, I think we were talking about remakes and how much yes. the Patricia Highsmith stories have been made and remade. Um, then we spoke about him when we discussed films from 1987 and his role, his key role in Wings of Desire. Um, and then we talked about him in vampire movies. He was in Nosferatu, the vampire from 1979. He was a character actor who worked a lot. Um, the last couple of things I saw him in were two films I actually didn't particularly enjoy. Sally Potter's The Party and Adam McGoyan's Remember. But his mark as a reliable character actor was, you know, he, I always enjoyed his presence even when I didn't much enjoy the movie. Uh, and uh, weirdly, his most famous role was maybe as Hitler in the film Downfall <laughs> yes. from 2004. Not because so many people saw that movie. I know that it played at the Oxford. But um, all the subsequent memes around that that you know, at the end of the film where he's in the bunker and he's yelling at his German. I mean, everyone has seen at least one meme related to that yes. scene, right? Including ultimately somebody, because those had started, those had faded away by the time that he actually passed away. And then somebody did a brilliant Hitler's reaction to the death of Bruno Gans <laughs> right. meme, yeah. you know, where he's like upset that nobody remembers him for anything except <laughs> the stupid <memes>. memes. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, I recommend it. it. It's it's a, I mean, you know, part of me is going too soon, but but it's but in a way it was it's true. It's like it was a almost a fitting tribute, uh, you know, sadly ironic and also hilarious at the same time. And you know, the Germans have a weird sense of humor, so maybe he would have appreciated it. I don't I don't know, but um, something I can recommend that he's in um, that is on Netflix, and it's a weird thing to be because Netflix really stinks for older films. Yeah, like it just, totally. You know, that really. They're more about pushing their own content, and 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 in Canada, it's even worse. The the, the number of uh, of uh, films made before the millennium is is pretty sadly lacking, and uh, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, obviously there's finite space and everything, and it, it would be a real jungle to find anything. But it you know, it, it would be nice if it at least had a better array of 
you know, curated older titles. But one thing that is curiously on Netflix in Canada and presumably elsewhere um, is uh, The Last Days of Shenu, which is an Australian film directed by Gillian Armstrong, great uh, Australian director. Uh, she made My Brilliant Career, which is a wonderful film with Sam Neill and uh, Judy Davis. And uh, she also made this um film about a ro- romance and, and a, sort of an older family, uh, older couple and their relationship with uh, Carrie Fox, who is in Angel at My Table, and, uh, and Bruno Ganz is in it as well. And I recommend uh, tracking that down on Netflix. It's, it's, it's a, Armstrong's a great filmmaker, and this is uh, a lovely film of hers that seems to have fallen through the cracks a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I always like to see him. Um, now, we should also mention, we've talked about Stanley Donan. He passed away recently, the the uh, last director of Hollywood's golden age he's been described as. I think uh, that's what they call him on IMDb. He directed famously On the Town, Singing in the Rain, Funny Face, uh, Charade, and as we mentioned, Two for the Road. Uh, and of course, he made some weirder decisions later in his career. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but you know, those, those, uh, musicals are, those early musicals are probably what he's best known for and, uh, and uh, a, a great, a big name in, in Hollywood in that period. Well, Singing in the Rain is arguably the most famous and best-loved musical of all time. So that's, that's no, uh, he, I think he co-directed with Gene Kelly. I think they were kind of a team uh, as far as that went. But, of course, you know, Gene Kelly's on camera most of the time, so... You know, Donan is doing a lot of the heavy lifting behind the scenes. Uh, he also made a, a kind of a downbeat musical also with Kelly called It's All, Always Fair Weather, which is about a bunch of GIs returning home after the war. And it's it's a unique film for its time. Uh, there's some great moments. I think that's maybe that's where Kelly does his dance on roller skates. I'm not 100% sure. But it's, it's, it's a great film and, uh, you know, a lot more serious than you would expect from a movie musical with some, some great performances. And The Pajama Game with Doris Day and his only major screen appearance, John Raitt, father of Bonnie Raitt. Huh. And it's, uh, it's a great musical. Uh, Bob Fosse did the choreography. Uh, so it's a great, some great teamwork there, uh, some really memorable songs. And it's, uh, it's about a labor dispute at a pajama factory. So it's, it's got this kind of, you know, this labor theme going on on with all these sort of sunshiny songs and, and um, great dance moves. So Pajama Game I, is, is a favorite of mine. I mean, I love Doris Day anyway, but but that film in particular. And John Raitt, you watch it and you was like, why didn't this guy make more movies? He's so good in this. He's just really, you know, forthright and manly, but he can dance his butt off. And, and, and for whatever reason, I guess he just didn't like performing in front of a camera. He preferred performing in front of an audience. That's what he stuck with but uh, at least one of his performances got captured he was in like one of the original carousel or um well he was in carousel but also uh, oklahoma i think and okay. on, on broadway he was a big star in broadway and uh uh just uh, made one film wasn't for him i okay. guess so uh and uh i guess our our other um our other tribute of sorts is uh to an actor who uh you know had really uh, never really lived up to the potential of his early work, which is unfortunate. And, uh, you know, the last couple of decades of his life were filled with a lot of hardship, a lot of it uh, self-created from uh, from everything I've, I've read. And that's uh, Jan Michael Vincent, who mm-hmm. uh, passed away uh, and, and you know, had a memorable start to his career and then even, you know, had a lead role on a hit TV series called Airwolf. Uh, I remember it quite well yeah. from my childhood. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, he was a, a you know a child actor who sort of graduated to adult roles with relative ease for a child actor. Uh, he's in some great films in in the early seventies, uh, things like Bite the Bullet with Gene Hackman, uh, Hooper with um, 
with the Burt Reynolds' Big Wednesday, the surf movie, which might be his most sort of iconic screen role. Yeah, this is the John Milius picture. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's really a great movie, even if you don't like surfing. I think it's well done. Uh, the film I remember him from, uh, the original version of The Mechanic, opposite Charles Bronson, and he was very much the sort of young, fresh-faced, kind of almost, I, he was just out of his teens, I think, when he was in that. And uh, it's funny, with the death of Luke Perry this week, uh, someone I know said, when your teen idols start to die, then you really know you're getting older. And uh, not Luke Perry, of course, better known for his TV work than his film work, that's for sure. But uh, but someone who also sort of peaked early with a lot of attention earlier in his life. And certainly, Jan Michael Vincent was that guy, too. Um, and, you know, recent times, he's his work has been overshadowed by, you know, reports of violence, especially violence towards his his girlfriends or his, you know, women, which is really unpleasant to hear about. Uh, but, uh, yeah, his early work, uh, you know, even I even like Damnation Alley, which is one of those sort of 70s post-apocalyptic uh, movies that, about a, a truck driving across the desert, the radiate, irradiated desert. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's kind of campy, but if you well, like that kind good. of thing. George Pappard. You can't go wrong with George Pappard, I don't think. So <laughs> there you a go. Good team. Um, the Mechanic is great. It's one of the better collaborations between uh, Bronson and director Michael Winner. You know, they had a long relationship. Some of those films are supremely trashy. Winner was a heck of a character himself. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Michael J. Michael Vincent is, is a nice counterpoint to uh, the stoicism of Charles Bronson, and and I have to say I do have a fond fondness for uh, the the world's greatest athlete, which he made the year after the Mechanic. So he made the Mechanic, a fairly adult kind of film and role, and then he makes this Disney comedy about basically a Tarzan esque young man who's discovered in the jungle and uh, these uh, college uh, coaches try to transform him into an Olympic athlete. It's a dopey comedy, but I watched it again recently. Uh, TCM showed a bunch of uh, Disney live action comedies and it's very much in the vein of those films like the Apple Dumpling Gang and Gus and, and, and you know, the computer that wore tennis shoes and all those. But, but Jan Michael Vincent actually, he really gives a, you know, a, a tender performance as this guy who just wants to go back to the jungle. And, uh, and there's some great comedy from Tim Conway and, and, uh, Nancy Walker as, as a fun role as the deaf landlady and all. I mean, it's just, it's a dumb Disney comedy, but you know, he at least brought some, some sort of, uh, professionalism to it. That brings us to the end of this sort of memorial episode of Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast, uh, where, uh, yeah, we, we we watched a lot of movies and, and we'll miss a number of these uh, creators in films. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, hopefully you've been turned on to a few movies you might not have heard of and might want to check out. Um, again, uh, Stephen Cook is opposite me. Uh, you have a, a, a Twitter account, Stephen, that you can uh, that you can people can reach you on. Yes, it's at ns underscore s c o o k e. And my Twitter account goes with my blog, Flaw in the Iris. Uh, Lends Me Your Ears also has a Twitter account. We're also on Facebook if you'd care to reach us through there. Um, and Lends Me Your Ears has a Patreon account if you'd like to share a bit of your hard-earned dosh for, uh, to help us keep going with this. Uh, we would very much appreciate that. There are production costs associated with Lends Me Your Ears. Um, but many, many thanks, speaking of production, to CKDU for the studio facilities where we record 
this, uh, and they play the show every second Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. in the afternoon, CKDU 88.1 in Halifax. Also, many, many thanks to our producer at the Village Soundcast Network for crossing the I's and dotting the T's and making this sound as good as it can. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you at the movies again sometime soon. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox, and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I hope that Seaton is alright. I hope that Charlie Bubbles had a very pleasant flight And Jimmy Portis learned to laugh and smile And Joe Lambton's learned to live a life of style This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.